Welcome to the Vanguard Church Podcast. You're about to hear a sermon from Vanguard Church Central in the heart of Colorado Springs. With every message, it's our prayer that you hear and learn how to live out your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. May your faith be strengthened, your hope increased, and your heart inspired to live for Jesus no matter the cost. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. You guys are, who had caffeine this morning? That sounded like a caffeine, there's lots of coffee. I see that in the room this morning. Well, hey guys, it's great to be with you this morning. Like I said, my name's Joshua Stevenson. I've been a longtime teaching team member here at Vanguard Church. I'm also most recently an elder. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that, that means and kind of what, how that applies to today. But I just wanted to welcome you and say thank you for being here. Our folks online, thank you for being here. I think my grandma's watching today, so hello. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Um, We're going to start today with just an observation that I think all of us, if we take just a minute and say, yeah, that's probably right, is is accurate. We live in a world of competing kingdoms. And maybe that that word's a little old. It's kind of old-fashioned. It's a Bible word. Maybe we can think about it this way. We live in a world of empire. That's a fun word. We live in a world of power against power, ruler against ruler, principality, that's a good Bible word, against principality. Nations, they compete against one another for territory, resources, and the ability to produce another country's goods. Companies compete against each other for market share, intellectual property, and global dominance. Sports teams, like we got March Madness going on right now, they are competing against one another, tooth and nail, to be able to cut down the nets from the hoop, say we're number one. And people, Creators, they compete against each other for clicks and likes and follows and shares and views. And we know the weapons that the world uses to compete. We know what countries use and corporations and consumers. to. We know the weapons they use to get the advantage over one another. We see this play out all over the place, and we're seeing it right now, unfortunately, in the conflict between Ukraine And Russia, manipulation, propaganda, persuasion, percussive weapons, power above all things is characterizing the kingdoms of this world. They are seeking power, dominance, your attention, your submission, my loyalty. But... And this is the important thing about the Bible and what we're talking about today is that there is another kingdom at work. You guys know that? It's beneath the scenes. And it's slowly, secretly, and subversively working its way into every corner and every pocket of the world. And that's the kingdom of God. And this kingdom... This kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, it's talked about differently in the Gospels, is not like the kingdom of this world, nor is its king like the rulers of the earth. He's not like those who dwell in executive chairs at the top of subscriber charts. Jesus, as we've seen throughout this whole series, is different. He comes with a different way, a different 
message. You want to be first? Be last. You want to rule? Make yourself a servant. We see this kingdom turned upside down and all the things of our world. We look at the kingdom of God and say, that doesn't seem right to me. That's a little weird. It's a little topsy-turvy. And Jesus, he spends a significant amount of time talking about the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew. And as, as we approach the end of the book, this is Matthew 25 we're going to be in today, Jesus turns to one of his favorite storytelling devices to help us understand what the kingdom is, what it's like, and he's going to give us some warnings that we really need to take to heart this morning. He's going to tell us some parables. He's not going to use a, oh, the kingdom of God's like a, like a leaven or it's like a mustard seed. He's actually going to tell us some cool stories. Again, that these are going to contain some warnings. So our title today, Kingdom Warnings. And what we need to understand, and this is a thing I think that the church, big C, you know, broadly, globally, and maybe especially in America needs to understand, is that the gospel is not unconditional. It was given unconditionally for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life for the son did not come to judge the world up to save it. That's Jesus's job to come to save us. But what's the condition? All who would receive it. So there's two kind of outcomes that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about blessings of the kingdom, but also the warnings of the kingdom. That there's inclusion in the kingdom, but there's also exclusion from the kingdom. It's not a happy subject, but it's the reality of the text that we're going to deal with today. He warns his readers that the kingdom is coming, but that not everyone will rejoice at that coming. So we're going to look at Matthew 25 in some detail. We're going to ask this question this morning. How did Jesus' warnings about the kingdom of heaven shape our story? So we've been talking about Jesus' story and our story. So how, does, how did Jesus' warnings about the kingdom of heaven shape our story? Now, here's a question that I was thinking about. Why are warnings important to our story? And why are warnings important in any story? Why do warnings exist in the first place? You know, I'm a parent. I have four kids. I got three boys, and so pray for me. And a little girl, so we're really excited about that. And I think about that. Warnings are really important for kids. Well, they're important for adults too, but really important for kids because they don't know a whole lot of stuff. They haven't been around very long. They don't have a lot of experience when it comes to the world. And so we have to give them warnings to keep them on the right track. You think of a traffic sign warning you that there's a, a sharp upcoming turn. That sign might be inconvenient if you're wanting to like recreate you know, a scene from Tokyo Drift or the Daytona 500, but it will keep you from smashing into the guardrail or going to meet your maker. So if you don't want to do any of those things, taking that warning is pretty serious. Warnings, they protect us from bad outcomes, from foolish choices, and from spoiling the opportunity that we have been given by God to maximize our lives for him. It's really important to understand that the Bible is full of boundaries and warnings and guardrails and fences 
And it's not to take away your freedom. It's not to put a you know, drag on your life, not to be a bummer. It's to help you understand that there is freedom within the boundaries to live as God has called you to live. And that outside those boundaries is a place of danger for you and for me and for the people that you love. And I'm, I'm sure that each one of us in this room has benefited from a heated warning. Your dad, your mom, your coach, your spiritual father or mother, some friend, some boss said, hey, you know, you really shouldn't do that thing. How many times have they been accurate? Anybody had that experience? Warning was good? Yes, no warnings in here. Everybody's like, everybody's good. I see that. That's good. You guys are smarter than me, I think. So our, our question today really is about wrestling with this ultimate warning that Jesus gives us, a warning that can provide a path either to eternal life or eternal condemnation. Because the Bible, you see, is not a book that's designed to make us feel good about ourselves. You guys know that? It's not designed to make us feel good about ourselves. It's, to, it's a book that's designed to show us the person and the character of God. And if you're really honest, if you think about the holiness and the perfection and the glory of God, like that makes me feel kind of bad about myself. In comparison, he's perfect, he's righteous, he's wise. He never makes a mistake. He always knows the right thing to do. His love is boundless. His mercy is perfect. And as I compare myself to God, I just kind of like want to go crawl in a hole, cover it up and say, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. But the beautiful thing about the gospel, about the Bible, about the story of God is that he says, I want you guys. <laughs> I made you to reflect my image in the world. I want to reincorporate you into my family so you can be the people that I've called you to be, co-heirs, rulers with me over all creation. That makes me feel pretty good, actually. I like that. That's good stuff. So as we hear Jesus' words today, when it comes to the kingdom, I want to ask you guys to just, just to kind of open your hearts today. That you would have a heart that would be ready to repent of sin, to respond to Jesus' offer of grace and forgiveness, and to say, God, if I'm going down the wrong road, if I identify myself with those who are condemned, those who are excluded in these passages, that you would, you would say, Lord, Forgive me. Give me grace. Help me to turn from that life and walk a path of righteousness in faith in Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you guys today as we turn to Matthew 25. This is what it says in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgin who, virgins who took their lamps to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five of them we're wise. Now, this is a thing we see in the Bible all the time, the wise and the foolish, especially if you read through Proverbs. And here Jesus is saying these five virgins, these bridesmaids, they all had lamps. Now, I like to think of Indiana Jones style kind of torches, kind of fun, easy way to remember, or Statue of Liberty style. They got one of those going on. And so, so this is what it said. They had, they had their torches. They were ready for a wedding. This is verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil 
with their lamps. Now, oil was necessary to keep their lamps burning, to light them, so that when the bridegroom makes his appearance, these ten women are ready for him to come. Verse 5. Now, the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose. They trimmed their lamps. They got them ready to light again. They cut off the burn, the burn parts and they used, so, so they could use the torches again. This is verse 8. So the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy them for their sel- yourselves. And when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, this is the important part of this, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came out also saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. So our first question, Jesus, our first question, how does, how did Jesus's warnings impact our story? Number one, Jesus's warnings remind us of the necessity of preparedness. Jesus's warnings remind us of the necessity of preparedness. Looking back in the story, the thing that's interesting to me is all these bride, these bridesmaids, these virgins, they were ready. They were expecting, anticipating the bridegroom coming. They had their torches. They were ready for when he would come. They, want to part- they were going to participate in the marriage supper. But then what's the difference between the groups? Well, the text tells us one were prepared for a delay and the others weren't. The others were simply stuck in the moment. Oh, he's coming right now. And they neglected to be prepared for the possibility that it was going to be a little while. I think about, you know, as a kid, parents would go out as a teenager and say, hey, we'll be back sometime. You know, make sure the house is clean. Well, sometimes they would stay out. They get a wild hair and they'd stay out till two or three in the morning. My parents, weirdos. And maybe I'd fall asleep and I didn't clean the dishes or I didn't do the thing I was supposed to do. And I got, when they got back home, it's not good for me. Nobody's ever done that, right? Yeah. But this is the idea. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom is coming unexpectedly. It's coming at a day at an hour when no one can know. And, and I'm sure you guys have heard, whether you're on the internet or it's books or whatever, there's been people for the last 2,000 years saying, today is the day, this is the year, this is the decade, this is the you know, roughly 50-year period when Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows. Not even Jesus knows. He says this in the Gospels. I don't know. Only the Father in heaven knows the day of my coming. And so what this parable is trying to help us understand is that as we wait, we should be ready. As we wait, our minds, our hearts, our activities should be focused on the coming of the king. And as we think about the the foolish virgins, they didn't have their oil. They weren't ready for the coming. And I think about that for myself. It's like, it's so easy to not be ready. It's so easy to get distracted, to fall asleep, to say, you know what? I'm just going to live for right now. I'm going to worry. And Candace, you said this in your, your prayer earlier. I'm going to worry about the car that I'm driving, the money that I'm making, the dreams that I'm chasing, whatever it would be. And we forget the most important thing is Christ. 
We forget to fix our minds on the, the possibility, the potential that in five minutes, Jesus could make his appearance. It's exciting and scary at the same time. But we're called as men as, and women, as boys and girls, as people who are hearing this message, who read these texts, to be ready, to set yourselves ready for Jesus' coming. And that means saying no to a lot of things. It means saying yes to some really hard things. But God is calling us to do that. He's calling us to be ready. We can see that the fate of the um, ill-prepared virgins is not wonderful. In fact, it's terrible. Though they were members of the wedding party, they had torches in hand. They were ready to celebrate the bridegroom's coming. They were shut out of the ceremony, of the feast. They were rejected. Jesus, uh, in, the, in the story, the bridegroom says, I don't know you. And this, this, again, this reminds me that there is an element of the kingdom of God, of faithfulness to Christ, of, of the world that we live in, that there is rejection in the kingdom of God. And while our, our modern sensibilities, whether that's cultural Christianity or the world that we live in, or you know, everybody's part of the, the divine or whatever it would be, we see that Jesus says no to people. Jesus doesn't accept everybody, no matter what. He accepts the faithful, the ready, the willing. And this is why, guys, evangelism, sharing your faith, being witnesses for the kingdom is so important. There are people in your lives, all of you, myself included, and maybe it's you today, who've never said yes to Jesus. How many of you know someone who's never said yes to Jesus? There's everybody. Coworker, friend, family member, whatever it would be. And that's why this is so important. To share our faith. To let people know the goodness, the graciousness, the love of God. Because Jesus says no to people who don't say yes to him. The whole truth aside from the half-truth that Jesus accepts everyone, is that Jesus accepts those who are prepared for his coming and he rejects those who are not. We're going to move on to Matthew 25, verse 14. This is the next parable. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, them, uh, entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another he gave one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. So first thing you have to recognize here is, I tell this to my kids all the time, life's not fair. <laughs> the master doesn't give everybody the same amount of stuff. It's a competence thing. He gives five to the most competent, two to the least, the next competent, and one to the, to the next. And a talent is a sum of money, big sum of money, actually, in the days of Jesus. And these guys were like his financial advisors. They were to take care of his money and provide the master a return. Now he had received, this is verse 16. Now he received five talents. He went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. 
So I got 100% return. That's pretty good. If anybody knows a financial advisor getting 100% returns, let me know. We'll talk afterwards. All right. That's pretty good. He said, so also those he had two talents, made two talents more. But the one who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, I delivered, you delivered to me five talents. See, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have made, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So again, the first two servants received commendation. They received praise from the master. They performed well. They did what the master expected them to do, which is to take his money and get a return on it. This is verse 24. He, he also who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Can anyone guess where this is going? <laughs> but his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I haven't sown, and Gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So we might think that the third guy was just conservative. <laughs> just like, you know, be careful. Well, he's not conservative. The master tells him what conservative would have been. Put the money in the bank. Let it get some interest. Give it back to me then. But he says, no. He calls him wicked, lazy, slothful, cowardly. He was afraid of a tough master, and so he acted like a weak servant. He wasn't going to take any risks. He didn't understand the heart of his master enough to do what his master expected. He didn't understand, I think, in this story that the master would have commended him for his courage for his willingness to take a risk, for his willingness to put himself on the line. I wonder what the story would have been if he would have said, well, I had one and I, try, I tried to invest it and I, I didn't have any success. I wonder if the master would have said, I'm disappointed that there was no return, but I'm glad for the effort. I'm glad for the effort. Because here's the thing, our risks don't always pay off, do they? Even if they're wise, even if we consider them, even if we think about it for a long time and say, you know what, this has a good chance of working out. Sometimes that doesn't happen. The risk is right, though. The courage is right. Can't always control the outcome. So verse 28 says, take the talent from him who has the, um, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For to anyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in a place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see the faithful servants get a little more. And the unfaithful servant gets what he has taken away from him. Worse, the unfaithful servant, like the ill-prepared bridesmaids, he's cast into the outer darkness. He's rejected by the master. So our question, how did Jesus' warnings 
inform our story, Jesus' warnings remind us of the necessity of diligence. Of diligence. Because each one of us in this room possesses a talent from God. Not in the sense that you can draw or sing or write or compute or sell or whatever. But like the talents in the story, we've been given a valuable gift with our lives. And the purpose of our lives, if you want to know the purpose of your life, I'm going to tell you, right? You guys ready? Like every person in, the same, in this room has the same purpose in life. To bring glory to God and advance his kingdom on the earth. Everybody good? Can we go home? Wrap it up? <laughs> if you want to know what your purpose is, it's that. To bring glory to God and advance his kingdom on the earth. Now, maybe you're in sales. It's to do that job with excellence and with integrity and with honesty. If you're a teacher like Candace, you know, you're at a, a public university, right? Or a public college. And it's to take the kingdom of God into those places with those students and to teach them in accordance with glorifying God and advancing his kingdom, right? Every person in here, no matter what it is, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a stay-at-home dad, if you sell houses or cars or whatever you sell, whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Because why, why is diligence important? It's because the kingdom of God is productive. The kingdom of God is productive. Now, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom out there that, oh, things are getting terrible. Things are awful, blah, blah, blah. Listen, the kingdom of God is working in the world right now. In places that you don't see it. In contexts that it looks dark and disgusting. In places where there's looks like there's no hope. The kingdom of God is advancing. And it will continue to do that. And it will not stop. You know why? Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Our world is infused with the power of Jesus Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power is working in every context and corner of the world. It will not be stopped. And you guys and me and everybody hearing this, those on live stream, get to be a part of of that if we will diligently put ourselves to the work that God has given us to do. That's what he's called us to do. The kingdom is productive. God expects a return on his investment in our lives. And when we waste it, when I waste it on mindless stuff, on focusing on the wrong things, we're in danger of God saying to us, throw that guy, throw that gal into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because he or she did not do the thing that I had made them to do in this life. Every crack and crevice of culture is infected with the kingdom of God. Because Jesus has died, he was buried, and he has risen again, and he's coming back. Amen? I thought about it this, this morning. You know, what is it like? Who likes Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah? You start cooking at like three or four in the morning, you get turkey in there. And then by the end of the day, like even in the, the, like the really dark, you know, storage closet in your house, you can smell it, right? It's down there, 
even where it's a little musty. It's like, oh, there's still, I smell that turkey. It's cooking, right? That's what it's like. It gets into everything. The kingdom of God gets into everything. And it's my belief, guys, that the kingdom of God is very much alive and that the gospel has very much to do in our world. In our last passage, we're going to look at um, this parable that Jesus says, and it's a little more direct. It's kind of less of a parable, more of a just, a, just a warning. He says this. This is Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, important word, when, not if, but when, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's a possibility, not a possibility, a certainty. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And here we see all the nations of the earth, those who were scattered and confused at Babel, brought back together. And then Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats, the faithful from the damned. And we need to recognize that this isn't, again, the Jesus that loves everybody guy. (laughs) This is Jesus the judge. This is Jesus the coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth. This is Jesus the warrior. This is Jesus the king. It says, my kingdom, not that kingdom. He's going to cast Satan and all his demons into the lake of fire and say, done with that. I rule and reign. That's what Jesus will say. It says, this is verse 33. And it says, we'll place his sheep on the right, the goats on the left. And the right was a place of honor, the left a place of dishonor in that culture. Verse 34, and the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to see me. And the righteous will say to him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did you see the sick in prison? When did you see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did to me. Now in the past, I've read this kind of as a a social justice passage. You know, we take care of the, you know, hungry and the homeless and the sick and those in prison. And now that's part of the Christian life, to be sure. There's lots of passages that talk about caring for the downtrodden, the lowly, those who are humble in spirit. But as I studied for this passage, what I came to recognize is that in the context of talking about the kingdom and the goats and the sheep and separating things out and all these things, this passage is not talking about social justice. This passage is talking about salvation. It's about how we receive Jesus himself through those who have been tasked to carry his message forward. Because if you think about the earliest missionaries, naked, in prison, homeless, sick, all kinds of things. (laughs) The people that God tasked in the early days of the church were these people. People who were in lockstep with Jesus but not in lockstep with the material blessings of the world. And Jesus is saying, how you receive these people, these brothers of mine, these who are in common cause 
with me in advancing the kingdom. When you receive them, you receive me. Now, when I was a teenager, before I became a Christian, I went to, you know, I, my sister was part of my salvation story, but she would tell me a lot about Jesus. And I'd be like, nah, nope, no thanks. So I got to ask annoying questions like a you know, 13, 14, 15 year old brother would ask and be real annoying and all those things. And then there was a guy who was middle-aged, probably about 45, 50 years old. He had a big belly and a skullet. Like he had no hair here, but like hair on the sides and it was all down here. Really weird looking dude. And he came to our church and he said, here's the gospel. For some reason, overweight, old guy with a skullet, like that guy connected with me. <laughs> and that's when I received the gospel. That's when I received Christ was in that, that moment. And so I think about that in, in this context is like, we don't know who that person's going to be to bring the good news to whoever it is that we're thinking about. We don't know who it was for us. Probably the most unlikely of person in some, some cases. Like it wasn't my parents. Maybe for you it was your parents. Maybe it was a street preacher. Maybe it was some homeless guy who you know, just got out of prison, but he's, he loved Jesus and he was sharing the gospel with you. I don't know who it was. What Jesus is saying here is how you receive those who are proclaiming the message is how you receive me. And then in verse 41, he says, those, he'll say to those on his left, these are the goats, depart from me, you, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and didn't minister to you? And they will answer him, truly, I say, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do this to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So here likewise, the unrighteous goats, they're excluded from the kingdom into eternal punishment because they neglected those who bore the name of the king. Would they have served the king? Probably, if they would have seen him. But that's not how Jesus does things. He says, you've seen me, you're blessed, but blessed are those who have not seen me and still believe. So our last, last point today, um, Jesus' warnings remind us of the necessity of willingness. Willingness to humble ourselves. Willingness to respond to the gospel, to the message of salvation that is presented to us, no matter where it comes from. It's a willingness to look past these appearances, inconveniences, and taboo. Um, I'm kind of reminded of the Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast. Has everybody seen that movie? You know, at the very beginning, the prince, you know, he answers the knock at the door. It's a, a horrible looking, you know, old witch kind of thing going on there. She says, hey, I just need a, a place to stay. And all I can offer is this rose. And he says, you got to hear, you know, kicks her to the curb. And she explodes into this beautiful princess or fairy or whatever she is and curses him. Because you don't look past appearances to see the blessing that was coming from the gift that was being offered. And the reason that willingness is so important and we're warned to be willing in this sense is because the kingdom of God must be received. It can't be stolen, seized, bought, or sold. It can only be received. And today, as every day for a person who either doesn't know Christ or is 
maybe walking away from Christ, is an opportunity to humble yourself. It's an opportunity for me to humble myself and say, God, I'm, I'm willing <laughs> to receive the thing that you have for me. Whether that's the gift of salvation, it's a message from your word that challenges and convicts my heart, whatever it would be. The warnings that we read today are real. Separation from God, exclusion from the kingdom is an option. A day is coming when Jesus will sit on his throne, not as a gentle savior, but as a triumphant king and judge. Now the question is, will we be ready? Will we be diligent? And will we be willing? That's your question today to ponder, to think through. And the last thing I'd like to say is that the salvation that Jesus offers is a gift. Again, can't be bought, sold, worked for, bartered with, anything like that. But there are expectations of being in the family of God. We talk about our next steps when we do at the end of our service. And I want to challenge you today. And this is a challenge to me. So hold me accountable, guys. Like, come ask me afterwards. What's your next step, Josh? It's important. But what is your next step? What is that next step of commitment, of engagement, of, of um, risk yeah, that you're willing to do as servants of the King? Thanks for listening to the Vanguard Central Podcast. We encourage you to go out and live your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. God bless you, friend. See you next time.